So let's, um, we're going to look today, uh, actually we're going to finish uh, a series that I started last week called the Radical Christian Code of Honor. This is going to be part two. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 30. And um, next week I'm going to start a series on the book of Philippians, the book of joy. I think a lot of people need joy today. There's an oppression in the world, in America. And people just, I mean, people in the church, you talk to them, and there's just so much doom and gloom and all the problems that are going on in the world, and they, you know, can't, you know, they can't make it. They're having a hard time, right, being happy and being joyful. And so I'm going to be sharing with you for about, probably about till the end of the year, a series of messages from the book of Philippians, the book of joy. So I'd like you to stand with me for the reading of the word, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. The word of the Lord here says, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Heavenly Father, Lord God, you call us, Lord God, to honor you to honor you above all. And Lord God, when we do that, amazingly, you lift us up and you honor us. And that is a glorious thing, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, as we enter in, Lord God, to the Sermon on the Mount today and we look again at the code of honor that you've laid out for us, the principles, Lord God, that you call us to live out in our lives every day, I pray, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would receive what you have, and that, Lord God, as we put these principles into effect, Lord God, and practice them, that truly, Lord God, we would bring you greater honor, and Lord God, you would lift us up, and you would honor us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this passage, again, it goes back to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was... The grandson of King Saul, when David became king, again, the custom was to kill all of the descendants, okay, of the previous king. Mephibosheth, he was actually dropped as a baby and was crippled in both legs. And when he came before David, this very humble man, he honored David as the king. And David honored him by inviting him to sit at his table and dine with his children, with his leaders, for the rest of his life. In the New Testament, Jesus said in John chapter 12, 26, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. And I want you to notice, for he who follows the Lord... For he who serves the Lord, what does it say? God will honor them. So that's what I want to again focus on with you as we wrap up today. So in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is this incredibly radical code. If you, if you have not seen that, there is, there is no code, there is no moral code, ethical code, spiritual code that can even come close to the radicalness of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out a number of principles that we, when we practice them, we will bring honor to God. So what I'd like to do with you, I want to share with you, again, just review quickly the few that we looked at last week and a few that we will look at today because I have not in any way, in fact, to preach the Sermon on the Mount, and you can go back into our archives and look, whether you go to our website, uh, whether you go on YouTube and look at our channel, you can go back and you can look. When I preach through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 to verse 7, I spent probably a half a year on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm skimming over it as I'm doing this last couple of weeks. So last week, the first thing we looked at, the code of radical humility, right? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And to be poor in spirit, that is, that is radical humility. To accept that you are dependent upon God, that you cannot save yourself, that you cannot redeem yourself, that it all depends on the Lord. And that takes, again, that's radical humility. 
Then secondly, we looked at the, uh, the code of radical grief and to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. And we talked about the mourning being not because somebody scratched your car or because you didn't get a raise or because you lost a client or because your sports team lost. The uh, radical grief, the radical mourning is grieving over your sin. Do your sins bother you as much as maybe other things? you know, in your life. That's radical grief. Then the third, we looked at the code of radical meekness. And uh, as we looked at, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not being a wimp. Meekness is self-mastery. Meekness is self-control. And the Lord calls us to be the masters, essentially under his mastership, but to be the masters of our life and not to be mastered by all sorts of other things that can control and dominate us. And then the next thing we looked at is the radical cold of salt, that God has called us to be salty, to be a preservative in this world. And then we looked at the code of radical light, that the Lord has called us to be a light to the world, to illuminate people's lives with his truth. So now the, the sixth one I want to share with you, this is the radical code of, of purity. The code of radical purity. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word there for pure is katharos, and that's where we get the word uh, katarize. So the concept of, of purity is to be pure, to be clean, to be clear. And notice that it's the person with this purity of heart, they come to the privilege where it says, they shall see God. Now, the, the word there, see, is the person shall perceive God. They shall understand God. They shall be able to experience God. It wasn't speaking in a literal sense that suddenly God is going to open the clouds, stick his face through, and say, here I am. It, it speaks of a, a, a perception and an experience. The heart, your heart, is the conduit, the connector to God. If a person's heart is impure, that will block the experience of God. If the person's heart is pure and consists of confession, right? It's not that the person will never sin, but there is confession, there is repentance. That person will have a, a conduit through which they will experience God. If you have unrepented sin in your life, unconfessed sin in your life, if you're, you're clinging on to some sin in your life that dominates you, you will see that your experience of, with God is going to be greatly inhibited and greatly limited if there's anyone at all. So if you imagine, imagine the heart as a, as a pipe. And if the pipe has corrosion, I don't know if you've ever seen, maybe the plumber comes in, Ricardo, have you ever seen a pipe like that? <laughs> Ricardo's a plumber. Yeah, in my house, have you ever seen pipes like that? <laughs> yeah, when a pipe corrodes, the water can't, can't flow in, the water can't flow out. And again, that pipe, I use this as, again, an illustration of the heart. If your heart has that corrosion of, of sin, of unrepented sin, unconfessed sin, that flow of the living waters of the Lord, that, that living water, that experience of God, that peace of God, that joy of God, you will not have that experience. But if the pipe is clean, if it's, if it's right, got no blockage, again, a picture of a person who is pure in heart, that flow of the living waters, that flow of the Holy Spirit and of His love and of His grace and of His joy and of His presence, all the things we hunger for, that will flow into your life. If you're not experiencing God today, you don't have that fresh experience of the Lord. And what I'm saying to you is totally foreign to you. What I'm saying to you right now is completely foreign to you. You're like, man, what this guy is talking about, I've, I've not experienced it, maybe I've never experienced it, maybe once I've experienced it and I'm not experiencing it now. It is because you have sin in your life that you need to repent from and remove. And I'll tell you, this works, this really works when you use the word magic. But anybody who has had this experience, you know this is true. 
Because as soon as you, you know, repent of that sin and confess that sin, it's amazing how that conduit, that pipe, suddenly clears and you are having the experience of God. So I want you to, to see in 1 Samuel 17.7, when Samuel anointed David, you have this experience. Uh, Samuel is, you know, he, he's thinking it's, it's one of David's brothers. They're taller they're younger, maybe they're more wide-shouldered. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance for at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. The word, the word there in Hebrew, the word cardia, it's where we get, and it's not talking about our physical heart. The heart in the Bible is the center of our being. It's the place of our deepest desires, our passions, our affections, our values. God is a cardiologist, and God looks at our hearts. He looks for people who, who have a heart that, again, is pure, which again he can flow into their soul and flow into their mind, flow into their entire life. The book of Proverbs chapter 423 says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. The experiences you are having in life, your successes or failures, your weaknesses or strengths, the experiences that you're having in life are flowing from your heart. Again, so, so here, again, the Spirit reveals to us, keep your heart with all diligence. Right? Guard it. If there's something in it that's, that's impure, you, you, again, you need to turn from it. You need to repent from it. You need to move away from it. That's radical. Now, let me just go a little deeper into the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 and show you how radical this is. In Matthew 5, 27 through 30, the Lord says, Have you heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery? But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's pretty radical. But that's one of the most radical things I've ever heard. I mean, as far as all the radical things I've ever heard, that, that's up here with all the radical things I've ever heard. So Jesus says this, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Deal radically with your sin, because if you don't deal radically with your sin, it will consume you, kill you, and even can kill you eternally and cast you into hell. Now, we call that a hyperbole. And a hyperbole is a gross exaggeration. And that's what Jesus is using here. He is using a gross exaggeration. He, he is not saying that we should pluck out our eye. Hey folks, if your pastor did that, I'd have no hands. I'd have no eyes, I'd have no feet, I'd have no tongue, it would be over. Okay? I think we all agree that that would be true of us, right? It's, it's a very radical, again, hyperbole that the Lord gives us here. What is causing you to sin? You need to remove it. How many of you have iPhones? How many right now, your iPhones are leading you into sin. Gossip. You ever see the gossip on the, uh, on the internet? And you just get sucked into it. Facebook, these other places. Slander. Adultery. Lust. Pornography. People have, have come to me, well, you know, and I got this, you know, I got this, uh, this sin addiction and I can't seem to get, you know, to get rid of it. And it's like, well, what, what's the doorway that it's coming to you through? Is it coming to you through the television set, not the, your big screen TV? 
Is it coming to you through your computer? Is it, is it coming to you through a person? Is it coming to you through your iPhone? And then I, I will say to them, if it's coming to them through their iPhone, have you ever heard of a hammer? <laughs> hey, if this thing's going to send you to hell, if this thing is keeping you from God and keeping you from being the person that God has called you to be, you need to deal with it radically. But I need it, you know. I need it for my business. I, I, you know, I need it for my ministry. I'll tell you once, this is something revolutionary that you should try. I, I, I have my phone right here. And any of you are welcome to come up and sift through my phone. I don't erase things. You're welcome. And by the way, you're welcome to come on my computer anytime and sift through it. And you go through the history because, you know, I don't erase the history every day. And you're welcome. I got grandkids. I got, I got a grandson who iPhones me, right? Last night he was iPhoning my wife on this thing. He's one years old. You think I want him to find something that could destroy him? A seven-year-old grandson, he's on my computer all the time. But I invite you. I invite you. These, these are the, the, two, the two accesses of, you know, cyberspace that come into my life. And I know how dangerous this thing is. Maybe you're not going to smash it. But maybe you need to open it up to your spouse to your friends, to your children, to be accountable to them with. That's radical. If not, you just keep going on, and it just, it, again, it will destroy you. Jesus said, he, it will send you to hell. Number two, was that radical? And Jesus said it. The code of the radical secret place so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 7, the Lord here says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. I shared this on a Wednesday night a, a few weeks ago as I was teaching on Psalm 91, the secret place. The Pharisees were performers. They lived for the praise of men. See me. Hear me. Let me impress you with my, with my long, repetitious prayers. Let me, let me impress you with my giving. Let me tell you how much I give. Let me impress you with my fasting. Let me impress you with my ministry. They lived a facade. They lived hypocrisy. They lived to impress others and not to impress God. So when they pray in the marketplace, right, on the street corner, they prayed and they stood there with these loud, long, repetitious prayers to impress. I always said this, man, the way you pray in private is the way you should pray in public. I talk to God in my closet. I don't need to come in front of you and say, Oh, praise you, Yahweh, the great and awesome God of heaven. I bow my heart before you. Just... It's a show. It's a show. When I see preachers do that, just a turn off. Is that the way you pray to God? Is that the way you pray over dinner with your family? They, they lived to impress people and not to impress God. When they would give, they would blow a trumpet and announce what they gave to impress others. Again, not to impress God. When Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, do you understand what he, what he meant by that? Is when you do what you do, do it to please God, not to please men. And when they would fast, they would make themselves look, look all exhausted and mess up their hair and look disheveled so that people would come up to them and say, oh, you know, Rabbi, 
You look, you look so tired. You look so exhausted. And what, what the rabbis say, I've been fasting. I, I didn't have breakfast this morning. To impress men. And not to impress God. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? If the Pharisees had Facebook. <laughs> they would love Facebook. You would have videos of them praying on the street corner, right? To people to see all of you, You would have them going in, right, to the temple and putting their, their little coin, right, in, into, the, into the bucket and them shouting out to the people how much they gave. You, you would have them, right, showing themselves fasting to tell the world what wonderful and, and deeply spiritual people they are. So the Pharisees say they're not around. But man, you got, you got Facebook Christianity. Facebook Christianity. I went on Facebook, I think I was on it for about two minutes, and I got sick of it, and I, ne- I basically canceled my subscription and never went on it again. I saw, I saw enough Facebook Christianity to, to last me for a lifetime. These people, every little deed they do, they post. What, to, to impress people. Look at how spiritual I am. Look at how good I am. Look at how righteous I am. It's all, it's all fake. It's all a facade. You know what Jesus said? He said, no reward for you. No reward for you. You've already got your reward. No reward for you. I'll give you a, a, a great term. Play to an audience of one. That's what it means to be in the radical secret place. To play to the audience of one. To pray to an audience of one. To give to an audience of one. To fast to an audience of one. To serve to an audience of one. To teach, to preach to an audience of one. That's the radical secret place. That's a life that is lived to please God and God alone. And that's, that's radical. And that is rare, especially today with social media. It is very rare. You, you live to an audience of one to bring him glory and not to impress people. I'll tell you, just as I'm preaching here today, I am preaching to an audience of one. You know, people come to me and say, Pastor Frank, that was a great message. Oh, what a, what a wonderful message. I don't care. My wife comes to me and she says, oh, did you see all the, did you see all the people who, who watched your message? I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to hear it. I, I, I don't care. A few weeks ago, I think our attendance was, was way down and somebody came up to me and goes, well, there's not a lot of people in church today. I don't care. If, if there was one of you here, just like when we started the church, I'm going to preach, and again, I'm preaching to an audience of one. People one day, they, they, they like the message, right? And then they, they don't like the message. I don't care. There's one person that I'm accountable to. One person that I'm accountable to. And let me tell you, he will hold me to an accountability that nobody, that no human being can possibly even come close to holding me to. But it's to an audience of one. That's the secret place. And again, that is a very rare place. Number eight. The radical code of change. The code of radical change. Look what Jesus said here. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. He says here, hypocrite, watch this in the red. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know what he's saying there? Change yourself before you try to change others. People, they're always trying to change others. They're always trying to fix other people. Or they're trying, to, they're trying to fix the world. Meanwhile, they cannot fix themselves. They can't fix the mess in their own life. The, the mess in their marriage. The mess in their family. The, the their, their mess in their health. The mess in their finances. 
And they want to go. They're going to go and they're going to mess with, with other people's problems. But the Lord's saying, here, fix yourself. And then you can actually help other people. So when the Lord uses this term here, essentially it's a logjam. Get the logjam out of your eye, and then you can go and you can pull a little speck out of somebody else's eye. But you got the logjam in your eye. You ain't going to be able to. You ever, you ever, I mean, you ever see people? I think people come to me and they're going to, you know, they're going to give, they're going to give me financial advice. What does your financial house look like? They're going to come, come and give me health advice. What is your, you know, what does your health look like? They're going to come and give you spiritual advice. What's your spiritual walk with the Lord like? What have you been doing to for God in the in the last in the last month in the last years? Get the speck, get the, get the log jam out of your own eye before you can go and start pulling specks out of other people's eyes. It's a great, it's a great little writing here. I'm going to call it a poem. It was by an unknown monk in the 12th century. Let me read this to you. It says, when I was a young man, I wanted to change the world. I found it was difficult to change the world, so I tried to change my nation. And when I found I couldn't change the nation, I began to focus on my town. I couldn't change the town, and as an older man, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I realize the only thing I can change is myself. And suddenly I realize that if long ago I had changed myself, I could have made an impact on my family. My family uh, and I could have made an impact on our town. Their impact could have changed the nation, and I could indeed have changed the world. Isn't that good? See, our, our lives, our words... Our actions have a ripple effect. Everything we do, and, and sometimes it's, it, it, it could be negative. Hopefully, most of the time, it's positive. When, when you change yourself, and you really engage, you engage in working on yourself. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to do and will, right, his commands. But we, we are partners with him as we work on ourselves. Invest in, in working on yourself. Look at your life and say, what do I need to change? That should be a daily thing. That is, that's a daily thing for me. What do I need to change in my life? And when I identify them, and the Holy Spirit helps me identify them, then ask God to give you a strategy, a plan to actually change that thing. Ask him for his help. And then get to, get to work on it. And work to, to bring that, that positive. Let me tell you this, young people here, you want to live a successful life. You want to live a significant life. Let me tell you, there's a lot of old people sitting here and if they were honest, they would tell you how they wish they could change things in their life when they were younger. And they didn't. There were, th there were things that they could have changed in their life. And those things were not changed. But young people, you have an opportunity. I love, I love speaking to, boy, Z generation. I get that opportunity during the week and some of the different things I do, the webinars I do. And I love speaking to Z generation. They're young. You know what? They, they are incredibly moldable and shapeable because the older a person gets you know this it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks the older the person it's harder to change when you're when you're older so when you're dealing with 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 those young um impressionable z generation people just say Make changes that you can change now. Don't let them become those negative habits that then take control of your life. And I'll tell you something. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years goes by really quick. And you're still in the same place that you were because you didn't make the changes. And those could be changes about your health. Those, those, those could be changes about, about your career. Those could be changes with the way you deal with your finances, the way you think about money. Those could be changes with your relationships and changes with your walk with the Lord. So again, that's, that is the radical code of change. Change yourself, and then you'll have that powerful ripple effect on being able to change and help other people change. Okay, number nine. The code of radical priorities. 
John chapter 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. That is my signature verse for my life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Right, what does it mean, the kingdom of God? The, seek the kingdom, the dominion, the, the authority, the power. It's, it's the lordship of Christ over your life. To seek the kingdom of God is, is to seek the king. Right, his righteousness. To, to have your priorities in order where you've got God first. You know, just, I, I speak to, to companies and I see a lot of the MLMs, the multi-level marketing companies, and they, have, you know, they, they all take the slogan, God first, and then family second, and business third. You know how many people I've ever seen who really live that out? <laughs> it's just it's lip service. They, people really live it out? God, God is put in the, in, in the background. Maybe family is somewhere in there. I've seen people sacrifice their own marriages and their own children because of, of their, their businesses. To really put God first. To seek the kingdom of God first. To put him above all things. Because again, people, people's priorities... I mean, Jesus addressed it again in the Sermon on the Mount. Look, he says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, material possessions, it, it can include money, but it's stuff. You cannot, you cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't keep, right, you can't keep mammon in front of God. You can't, you can't think that they can be kept on an equal plane. And that's just, again, mammonous stuff. Mammon can be your career. Mammon can be your car. Mammon can be your garden. Mammon can, you know, be your house. And most people look at that and they say, oh, well, you know, that's, that's Jesus coming against rich people. Man, I, I've seen poor people who worship money. Middle class people who worship money. There's not just people, you know, with me. In fact, some of the most generous people, and I'll tell you this, the most generous family in our church and, and I, I don't look at finances. I don't go through and say, who gave this much this month? I never have. I don't do that. I think that's a major mistake for pastors to do. And then what you're doing is you're favoring the people who are giving and then you're you know, overlooking the people who are not. You don't know what people are making. But there is a family in our church, the most giving family in our church. And some of you know this because they give to you. They're one of the wealthiest families in our church. So it's, it's, this, this isn't against people who have money. Abraham was rich. Solomon was rich. Right? Job was rich. It, it's not, you know, and I say this. People think, you know, money, um, you know, it, it expo when, you, when you get money, all it shows you, it just exposes more of what you are. And people think money makes people evil. No, no, no. If the person's evil, that money is just going to be magnifying their evil. And if the person is good, it's just going to magnify their good. So he, he's, not, he's not here talking, right, down against somebody having money. He's just saying, if you got money, you've got to keep God first. Whether, no matter how much money you have. Look at, in Philippians, there's another verse that talks about the worldly God. Philippians chapter 3, 18 through 19. For many walk, of whom I, I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So you immediately look at that and you say, well, the God is their belly. It's talking about their appetite for food, uh, gluttony. That, that could be part of it. But it's essentially talking about the, appetite, the appetites of the flesh. People whose, whose God is leisure. I mean, this is, this is America today. People's, people, in their, their God is leisure, it's, it's comfort, it's entertainment. I mean, you see the obsession with, with sports, the obsession with, with theater, the, the obsession with entertainment. And I mean, that dominates their life. The average American, 40 to 50 hours a week being entertained by, by Netflix or, or Amazon, it says that's their God. To just... Again, across the spectrum, economic spectrum, poor people. What have poor people focused on? They're, they're focused on survival. 
You deal with, with people who are, I mean, I mean people poor, they're, they're living from hand to mouth. And sometimes there ain't a whole lot in their hand, especially with inflation right now. But you see poor people, they, they're focused on survival. And Jesus calls us to help those people. Then you have, you have the middle class. The middle class, their focus and their obsession is on comfort. The middle class is just, they, they are obsessed with comfort. And it's interesting because they will basically spend their present paycheck on comfort and they will end up, and this is 50% of Americans now are retiring with less than $5,000 in their 401k or bank account. Where'd all the money go? Go and look in their garage, look in their attic, and look in their basement. Look at all the things in there that they bought to comfort themselves. And then the upper class is focused on wealth. And they think differently, very differently than the middle class. Something, something you know, that I noticed when, when I would run through Dumont and Bergenfield, I noticed that you had the Bergen Record. Now this is when newspapers were in paper, but you had the Bergen Record, the New York Times, the New York Post, the Daily News. When I would run up into Alpine or into Closter and Demarest, I noticed that they had the Financial Times, Investment Business Daily, and the Wall Street Journal. Those people think differently up there than people think down here. And uh, they, have a, they have a wealth, they have much more of a wealth consciousness. And then I call them kingdom people. So, you, you know, you have the poor, you have the middle class, you have the uh, upper class. Then you have the, the kingdom class people. They are people who, essentially, their main focus is significance. And, and significance is, is not, you know, merely about me getting. It's about helping other people to get. They make a significant difference in other people's lives, spiritually, um, in their careers. Financially, they, they help other people, they empower them. Their main focus is, it's a servant mentality. The, the, the significant mindset is, I want to make your lives better. That's the priority. You know the beauty of this is? If you help other people to get what they want to get, you'll find that they will give you what you want. And hopefully that's pure. But that, 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 that's the picture. But having your, your, your priorities, again, your priorities in order. The significant person is looking, again, to glorify God. Their kingdom, their kingdom mind, they have a kingdom mindset. They look, again, about empowering people, you know, equipping people. Now, let me, uh, let me get even a little more radical with you with this, with priorities. How do you know where your priorities are? You sit down and do a self-evaluation. How do you know where your priorities are? I'm going to give you something here. I really do believe life is simple. I, I believe the Christian life is simple. If you want to see where your priorities are, do this, do this, tonight, tomorrow. Don't wait too long to do it, because you want to get your priorities in order. But if you want to see if your priorities are in order, just get out your checkbook and your calendar. That's the ultimate test of priorities. Look at your checkbook and your calendar. Not lip service. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And there is no place for the Lord in your day or your week. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And there's no place for the Lord in your giving. There's a very simple principle that I adopted many years ago, and it's called the principle of first. Give God the first part of every day. Every morning, it's God first. In my house, it's God first. Before we do anything, it's get alone with God. Get into his word. Pray. Sue and I, we, we, we instilled that in our kids. It's great when our, when our kids were all together in the morning. Everybody's got a place that they go and they've got their Bible open and they spend time in prayer. Give God the best part of every day, the first part of every day. 
give God the first day of every week. That's why we call it the Lord's Day. And you devote the Lord's Day to Him. You come to church. You worship Him. And, and if you can, some of you have to work. I understand that. Um, because Sunday is not my Lord's Day. My Lord's Day starts somewhere on Sunday afternoon and goes into Monday. Because I'm working right now. I'm breaking the Sabbath. But this is not the Sabbath. This is the Lord's Day. But give him the first day. Give him the first day of every week. Devote that time to your family. Devote that time to your, you know, to your, to your children, to your spouse, to your friends. Devote that time to, to doing good things. Good things. Doesn't mean you can't play. If you sit all week, maybe you need to go for a run. And maybe if you run all week, maybe you need to sit. But just give yourself time to renew yourself in the Lord. Give the Lord the first part of your income. The first part. Don't give him the leftovers. You know, some people, they give to God at the end of the month. This is what I got left, I'm going to give to God. That's not first fruits giving. The scripture teaches first fruits giving. Old Testament tithe. That you're giving, you're giving that, that first part of your income to the Lord. It's a, be- it's a beautiful thing. You know, what, you know what, when you see a lot of tight-fisted people usually have financial problems. Tight, tight, tight-fisted people. The problem with being tight-fisted is you, you never open your hand to release what God has given you. And when you open your hand to release what God has given you, guess what he does? He puts it back in your hand. You know, we, 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 don't, we don't talk about money here. It's not something, I mean, just, just again, it, it fits into the context of where I'm teaching today. But you give that first part of your income unto the Lord. And then the, the, the last principle here of, of first, give God the first consideration in every major decision. Now, I was going to make a decision this week, a few decisions. I have some big decisions I have to make about the ministry here, about leadership here. There's some decisions I have to make of where we're going in the future. And I was pretty much set to make a decision. And I said, you know what, I, I didn't pray enough. So the last three days, I've spent a lot more time in prayer on these decisions that I have to make. Giving God, Lord, I need to hear from you about what you want, not what I want. It's your will, not my will be done. So when we talk about giving God that first consideration in decisions, when you leave the picnic today and the desserts just didn't turn you on and you go to Baskin-Robbins, I'm not talking about, am I going to have strawberry or tutti-frutti? That's not what I'm talking about. Some Christians are kooky with this stuff. They're crazy with this stuff. All I'm saying is when you have a big decision, you, you need to go to it with the Lord and pray through it. All right, last one. The code of radical action. And Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount in verse 24 through 27 by saying, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them is like him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and a great, and great was its fall. Notice, again, the difference. What is the difference between the two? The one who built his house on the rock compared to the person who built their house on the sand, what is the difference? The difference is what they did and didn't do. <laughs> that's, that's the difference. The difference is one took action. One put it into practice. Right? And, and we look at this. Look on the Sermon on the Mount. This is the conclusion Right? This is, the conclu- this is the final challenge of the Sermon on the Mount. Put it into practice. Put what into practice? Put humility into practice and be poor in spirit. Put mourning into practice. Grieve over the right things, not the wrong things. Grieve over what's wrong in your life and keeping you from enjoying that, that, that presence and that power of God. Put meekness into practice and begin to exert self-control of your life. Begin to take control of your life and not allow yourself to be controlled by the things around you or the people around you. Be salt. Be a preservative in this world. Be, be a light. Be a light to the people around you. Illuminate their lives. 
Live in the secret place. Live in the secret place. Get your priorities in order. Start to work on yourself first before you start trying to change everybody else. Or just, I'm just touching, right? I just touched on it. There's so many more in the Sermon on the Mount. And you may, you may look at that and say, well, putting all these things into practice, that's a challenge. Man, that's, that, that's a mountain to climb. Just understand, God gives us his spirit to help us. God gives us his spirit to empower us, to, to energize us. You really understand the work of the spirit. The spirit, when you're yielding to the spirit, he comes into your life, right? Into your body, into your mind, into your heart, into your spirit. He comes into you like a hand that goes into the glove and then can animate the glove. He comes in and he gives you power. But some of these things, right, when you first start doing them, right, they're hard. They're radical. There's a, a saying that I love. It says, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly at first. He recruited a bunch of fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot. They, they struggled. They, they fell. And even when they started to walk, it was two steps forward and one step back continuously. Have you found that true of your own Christian life? Even after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they still at times were falling. Look at the book of Galatians, Peter, you know, Peter and Paul and the conflict that they're having, or, or Acts chapter 16 with, with, with Barnabas and, and, and Paul. So here's a, here's a great, this is everything I teach here at the church, um, when I'm out doing you know, webinars or seminars with different organizations, coaching people, this is, this is what I teach. You must first learn to crawl before you can walk. It's, it's okay to begin crawling. You know, when God teaches me something new, I'm on my hands and knees crawling at first. Don't, don't, don't get discouraged. And don't compare yourself with other people. Then you need to learn to walk before you can learn to run. As you begin to right, walk, your legs get stronger, your balance improves. I see my little grandson, right? He just learned how to walk recently. Now he's sprinting, right? He's sprinting all over the church. Then you need to, to learn to run before you can learn to sprint. Right? You see people, when they begin to run, they, they do, they wog. You hear wog? They, I'm wogging. Wait, I'm walking. I'm walking, I'm walking. You might have to learn to walk a little bit before you can really learn to run and then to sprint. How do you learn to sprint? Practice. Consistency. Diligence. Discipline. That's, that's, that's how you learn to, to put all of these things into practice. Radical, right, Christian practice. i tell you this one story real quick, and then I'm going to end. Uh, a number of years ago, I'm doing all the landscaping. I bought this house. I'm doing all the landscaping on the house. I'm doing it myself, and I'm doing it with my teenage daughter. So we're planting, you know, we're planting shrubs. We're doing rocks. And I'm driving down the road one day, and there's this beautiful pile of rocks in front of this house. And... Um, I, I, I stopped. It's, like, it's out there. Like somebody's coming to pick it up. He don't want them. They're beautiful. These white, beautiful white stones. And um, so I loaded up my truck, and I took them and I put them around the house. Two days later, I'm running, and I see a, a truck unloading another pile of stones. I stole his stones. <laughs> so I went home, took a shower, got in the car and went back, knocked on the door, and this gracious Jewish man comes to the door and I said, Sir, I said, you know, you had a pile of stones delivered a few days ago. I took them. I thought you were getting rid of them. And I said to him, you know, either I will pay you for them or I will bring, I will bring them back. He looks at me and he says, he says, 
what are you? And I said to him, I'm a Christian. You know what he said to me? He goes, you are a practicing Christian. That's all he said. And he goes, you can have them. And I just was overjoyed. He, they had to, I mean, they had to be worth a few hundred dollars. But he said, you're, you're a practicing Christian. Do you know what, you know what, I, I, I was, that's a rare thing. How many people claim to be Christians? Man, they don't practice what they preach. A practicing Christian. That's radical. So, put it into practice. Well, I encourage you to do this. Go and read the Sermon on the Mount. You might read one chapter a day or all three chapters a day. For the next couple weeks, just, just go and read it and reread it and reread it. And then look at the things that you need to be putting into practice in your life. Don't, don't take on 20 of them. Don't even take on 10. Line by line. Right? Crawl. Crawl. Maybe some of you will be running. Amen? God will honor you. Listen, like Mephibosheth, God will honor you as you honor him. And that's a good thing. That's a good place to be. Okay, let's bow our heads. I'll invite the worship team up. Father, I thank you, Lord God, for your word. The example you give us in Mephibosheth, Lord God, who came and he honored King David. And because of that, Lord, King David honored him and invited him to his table where he would sit, a part of David's family, honored through the rest of his life. And I believe, Lord God, that man, we will see him in heaven and he won't have crutches because, Lord, he honored you and he's being honored by you forever and ever. So, Lord, we seek to serve you. We seek to follow you, Lord God. We seek to be practitioners of your word. We pray, Lord God, impress these truth upon our heart that we would truly, Lord God, practice what you've given us. For in Jesus' name we pray this, amen.